Welcome to the King's Church Warrington podcast. Inspirational teaching from our Sunday celebrations. Good morning. Are you enjoying the rain? Yes, the, the plants are being watered, aren't they? You know, that's a good thing. We don't need to do that. So, so looking at uh, Luke 22, and uh, our subject is food glorious food. Thinking about uh, the Lord's Supper and uh, just read a few verses from verse 7. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lambs were sacrificed and Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to go? They asked him. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, A man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, uh, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? And he will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is the place. Go ahead and prepare our supper there. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said. And they they prepared the Passover supper there. Then at the proper time, Jesus and the twelve apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I've looked forward to this hour with deep longing, anxious to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat it again until it comes to fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and when he had given thanks for it, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had thanked God for it, he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took a cup of wine and said, This wine is the token of God's new covenant to save you, an agreement sealed with the blood I will pour out for you. But here at this table, sitting among you, is a friend, is is a man who will betray, as a friend, is a man who will betray me. For I, the Son of Man, must die, since it is part of God's plan. But how terrible it will be for my betrayer. Then the disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. And they began to argue among themselves as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men order their people around, and yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, those who are the greatest should take the lowest rank, And the leader should be like a servant. Normally the master sits at the table and is served by his servants, but not here, for I am your servant. You have remained true to me in my time of trial. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in that kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The first few verses of this chapter, uh, of this section... Uh, talks about, mentioned the word Passover, and it's probably mentioned about five times uh, in 7, 8, 11, 13, and 15. And so they want us to know that this is the Passover. This is the Passover meal. And um, so the significance of what's going to happen has roots in this historic meal, the Passover. And um, it's, it's like we have a national holiday 
you know, in, in Britain, and someone comes along on that holiday and, and changes it. It's, it's massive. The Passover Jesus is attending. And um, he's dealing with a, a sacred memory that has been ingrained for centuries. Um, it's hallowed ground, the Passover. And um, as our video showed us, it was eaten uh, the first night of um, the Exodus when the children of Israel were liberated from slavery. And each family killed a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts. And the angel of death passed over the Israelites and they were saved by the blood on the doorposts. And God was rescuing uh, his, his people. And um, this, what we're looking at here is a world view, a mindset. Passover creates uh, a framework for a people, for an identity um, that is embedded in their, in their history. And um, it's, it's big. And Jesus comes along to this and changes it. In this moment, uh, the Son of God tells us that he is offering himself, that he is changing this historical memory, this identity. And it all, he's saying, it's all pointed to me. And um, we are invited to this meal, to share this meal with Jesus. So, If that's the case, how much more does it mean for us to remember? If this is, this is a kind of a shaped identity historical event, Jesus takes this meal and gives it to us, the church. How much more is it meant to be remembered? Is it meant to shape our identity? Is it meant to shape our worldview? Um, when we read the context of, of, of it, and it points to Jesus. Jesus is reminding us that our sins have been paid for and that we can eat this meal with celebration and joy. So I just want to kind of take us on a little bit of a, a journey through the Bible about food and to think a bit more broadly uh, and then come back into talking about this uh, meal, the, the communion. So, back in the Garden of Eden, we have Adam and Eve, and they've been given permission to eat from any tree in the garden, and they've got all of that choice, but they can't eat from the tree of good and evil. And so, if you think about it, food was one of the first ways where we expressed our obedience to God, what we ate, was expressing our obedience to God, that we recognized that he is the one that is our provider, that we enjoyed his presence. But then food became the way that we showed our disobedience to God. So what we ate showed how we disobeyed God. And... um, Romans tells us that 
after that, that, that for all they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their hearts, foolish hearts, were darkened at that point. And our relationship with food has tended to be affected since that, that point. You know, we, we, we see in our, in our kind of culture, food is a gift of God, but we can treat it one of two ways, can't we? It can become a utility, fuel. That's all it is, it's fuel. So we're so busy um, that we just, we just need it and we eat it and we, we, we carry on with what we're doing. So it becomes fuel. Or we become overindulgent with food and um, we eat too much because we live by bread alone now. And we don't have the presence of God to balance our appetites. And so food can go the other way as well. And um, we have those two tendencies. I know for me, there's been times uh, in my life where um, it's been the same foods that I've, that I've liked. And I've maybe overindulged on the same foods over a period of time. And our appetites can go ski-whiff around food. And um, that's because uh, we became self-conscious of our image uh, after the fall. And um, we became aware of what we look like. And we became preoccupied as well with what we look like. And so food is a part of that. It becomes our enemy in, the, in that process. So we can often use food to escape Instead of finding refuge in God, it can be something that feeds, we, we kind of self-medicate with it, you know, um, we've got the secret stash of chocolate in the fridge, or something like that, which I have. <laughs> and we want to live by bread alone. We don't find that refuge or comfort in God and the goodness of God. And both extremes are wrong. Uh, we want to live um, we, we, wanna, we, we can treat food as fuel, or we can treat food as our salvation. And when we remove God and the presence of God from our lives, the relationship with food can become distorted. And we see it in our culture. And, you know, we can be more righteous, can't we, at Slimming World? Less is more. Or we can be more blessed, in swimming world <laughs> because we have that we, we try to manage that Wood, John Woodrow has said that Eve was the first woman to know the link between self-indulgent eating and having nothing to wear sorry <laughs> and so when we think about the fact that we are asked to we, we now live by bread alone and it reflects in our society, it reflects in our culture, our appetites and how we are distorted in those. But when we come to scripture, we journey through scripture, we see food as, as a blessing from God. So in Exodus 24:11, after the Passover, after the Exodus, when they've been set free, they're invited to a meal in the presence of God. And so in Exodus 24, 11, they were brought to Mount Sinai. And it says that the leaders saw 
the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against those leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank in his presence. And so there's this invitation around the meal and food to enjoy and be in the right relationship with it, but also to be in a right relationship with God. We are invited right into the presence of God, and that is pictured around a celebration of a food to eat with God, to have that intimacy with him. When we move forward into the journey and the story of, uh, of Israel, in Deuteronomy 8, it says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so they had this experience of being provided for by, man, uh, by manna. But even in that, they, they grumbled. They wouldn't kind of live in that place of God's provision, knowing that that is sufficient, that God can meet my needs, God can supply my needs. They still were grumbling uh, through that time. And so they spoke against God. And in Psalm seventy-eight nineteen, it says, they spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Um, they couldn't trust him completely to lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And we are in that situation um, for, for, with us, that the whole, they, they all died in the wilderness and God provided manna and it tasted like honey in anticipation of the promised land. And the day that they entered the promised land uh, and just uh, ate the produce of the land, the manna stopped. God's provision ended and then they ate the food that was provided in the promised land. And then when we journey further and we look at the book of Joel, and we're still thinking about how food is pictured through, through the, the Bible. In Joel 2, it becomes uh, the absence of food becomes judgment uh, or a, a picture of judgment. So Joel in 2.3 says, Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. And so we see kind of the absence of, of, of God's provision as a, a place of, of judgment. But then later on, in the same chapter, in Joel 2.4, it says, Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. And so God represents that sense of community by enjoying that in, the, in a meal or in food or in his provision. And God's goodness is expressed in that provision in food. Salvation is a feast. There's a picture of God saving and bringing us to a place of his encounter and his presence 
as a feast, as an abundant place of enjoying a meal. And in Joel Joel 3.18 it says, In that day the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Achakias. And that's a picture of the results of his saving to feast abundantly and to feast with, with God. Then we come to Luke 22. And bear in mind all of those pictures that we've, we've just had. Then we come to Jesus in Luke 22. And he's about to suffer. He's about to go to the cross. And he goes to a place of judgment. He goes to a place like Joel of darkness, um, of God's judgment. And he is judged for our, for our sin. And in those moments, the curtain of the temple is ripped from top to bottom. And that was the most holy place. Uh, the heart and symbol of um, going into the, the Holy of Holies in the temple. And when that curtain was ripped from top to bottom, it meant when Jesus had died in darkness, that the way was open. The way, way is open into the presence of God for you and for me. That we are invited to celebrate the feast. And in that place, the the lamb is placed on the altar and the blood is um, put on the mercy seat in that most holy place. Just like the Passover, just like our lives, the blood of Christ is applied to your life and to my life. The way is open. We have access to the presence of God. So Jesus is the the host of a messianic banquet. And the Last Supper is a picture of an invitation for you and for me to enjoy and to be in the presence of God of God, so that we live our lives not by bread alone, not just for the appetites around us, but we know what we need is the presence of God right in the heart, so we can have a balance in our life. It's back in place. The access is there. For us, Jesus has invited you and he's invited me into that place. In Luke twenty two twenty, it says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So, in the new covenant, Jesus represents you and God. 
He is the faithful representative for you. That means that this relationship is secure eternally because it rests on what he has done, on his perfect faithfulness. Because he didn't live by bread alone. None of us could manage that, but he did. He's done that for us. He's been our representative to to do that. And the story of God offers us that realignment in our life. So the communion meal orientates us back into God's story. It puts us back into God's story. We were not in God's story, but communion puts you in God's story. Right back in the heart of it. Right back in the shaping of your identity. Right back in the historic kind of momentum and for your life. Communion does that. It reorientates our life, our culture, the way that we do life. Eating in the presence of God as a celebration of his generosity in creation and salvation. It's a picture of restored, of that being restored to us. We've looked at that in the Old Testament. It's a picture of salvation. And so... We anticipate this when we have the Lord's Supper, that we are different to each other, but we come together and find community in this table and in this place. It's a powerful declaration of the future feast of God to which we are all uh, invited because it represents the current presence of God in our lives. In Joel, the end of Joel, it says, the Lord dwells in Zion. And as we take communion, we're saying, God dwells with us. God lives with us when we, when we share this meal. In Luke 22, 24 to 30, we see the disciples' reaction, and um, they um, don't really get it at this point. And they're not really focused on Jesus as the center of this. They're focused on themselves at this point. But this is about, this, this kind of meal is about God's kingdom. It's a rule of justice, a rule of peace, joy, freedom, and life. And Satan's lie is to portray that as bad news. And that's what he's been about. He's, he's lied that we would be more free without God. But we're not. We ended up um, enslaved, trying to live by bread alone. But the twist in this story is that the king comes to this world and judgment falls on him. Not on us, who have been the ones that have turned away from God. But on the king himself, at the cross. The king who is a servant, who's flipped it over, and he has served us. So he took our judgment that we deserved. And so this is good news. This is an invitation to his kingdom 
when we share this meal. But they didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. They just wanted to be who is the greatest. Um, am I going to be more important? They, they, they knew he was talking about some kind of kingdom. But their view of the kingdom was, well, I'm going to be the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest? Is it you? And that was their response to it. And Jesus talks to them about the culture of his kingdom through this meal. That it's meant to portray a culture that should be our culture. And it's a culture of servanthood. So we want honour without service. Glory without suffering. Uh, But Jesus calls them to the way of the cross. Which is a way of humility and uh, a way of love. And so if you follow his way, you will experience the joy of his presence and of his eternal feast, of his abundance, if you will follow his way. And there's no promotion from being a servant of the king. That's what this meal tells us. There's no promotion. The greatest joy is to be a servant of the king. That's the way that he has shown us to be. And it's the way that we live in his presence. It's the way where we find his provision. And we're not trying to fill our appetites with the other things. So he says that uh, in this supper, it's a glimpse of the goal of his salvation to that bigger feast that's to come. And we, we read about that in Revelations, that we are uh, invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So just like they came to that place after the Passover and they saw God, we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great feast in God's presence. It tells us about that in Revelation 19, 9. And so he's longed to eat this meal because it's a foretaste of what's to come in his kingdom. And that weight of his suffering that has weighed on his heart, it tells him that this is worth it. This is going to be worth it because I'm looking forward to sharing community around a table with his people. This is worth it. And that's how the Lord's Supper functions for us too. That it's a foretaste of our invitation around that table, eating at this table. And having uh, the Lord's Supper. And we see it in, in Acts 2. Um, there was The Lord's Supper is mentioned in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Where they shared meals and they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Uh, on a daily, it seemed like on a daily basis in that context. So in this world, this world can at times be sad. At times when we hear people's stories. This world at times can have a sense of feeling broken at times. The Lord's Supper is a moment, a moment of joy 
because it's a moment of the future. The fact that you're invited and eating of it is a window into joy, future joy of the presence of God. And the experience of God's presence now that you taste now points you to that, tells you that, speaks to you about that. says do this in remembrance of me talked a little bit about it being a uh, like a world a world view as we look into the the lord's supper it's a little bit like you know shaping our world view and we're asked aren't we to take every thought captive to the obedience of of christ that's one of the verses uh, in that we, we speaks about our mind and um, mindset is fairly recent language. It was brought in in the 1920s. And worldview only came into our concept in the 1850s, apparently. And um, so we kind of think in those terms in uh, culture. But the mind and heart are, are intertwined. And our thoughts and emotions are intertwined. And so... I've been thinking about this recently. Have you ever stopped to think what your memories are and what you recall in your thinking? And it's actually part of our... We, we, we have choice. We can, we can help ourselves. We can change our memories. We can change our mindsets because that's how the mind works. And so what we remember um, is, is important and it's how we shape uh, our experiences and moments. And we forget lots of things that happen in life. So, thank you. It's a weird kind of thought that a lot of your life you forget. <laughs> so, you just don't remember lots of your life. And we do that un- um, unconsciously. And um, it's really interesting, isn't it, that the one thing that Jesus says to us there are other things that he asks us to remember but this particularly remember me god knows how we work he knows our mindsets he knows our minds and he asks us to come back to this point memory is not passive it's active jesus knows that about our minds and we are active at this point in remembering the culture that we belong to that takes our thoughts captives, that changes the culture, that changes our worldview, that we come back to this point. Uh, Peter Lightheart has said this, the Lord's Supper is the world in miniature. It has cosmic significance Within it, we find clues to the meaning of all creation and all history, to the nature of God and the nature of man, to the mystery of the world, which is Christ. Though the table stands at the centre, its effects stretch out to the four corners of the earth. It's also said this, participation in the communion meal is habit-forming. Each time you come to the table... We are learning 
and relearning the habits of cross-centered living. Through the Eucharist, though the Eucharist does not bypass the mind and conscious reflection, the effect is more a matter of training than teaching. At the supper, we eat bread and drink wine together with thanksgiving, not merely to show the way things really ought to be, but to practice the way things really ought to be. In short, the supper exercises the church in the protocols of life, in the presence of God. So he exercises us in the culture of lifestyle and the way of life of the cross. We remember every time that our sin is dealt with, that we're forgiven, that we are acquitted, we are adopted, we are loved, we are valued, we are called afresh to be servants of the king at this table, bringing us to a place of intimacy with Jesus. We get to grow in holiness, we get to examine ourselves and keep a short account of sin at this table. We get to recognize that we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that man doesn't live by bread alone. We get to know that God is in control, that he is the king, that he has a kingdom and that we don't need to be. So um, this meal is a, is a future meal. God speaks to us about sharing meals in his presence where we experience great joy. Every time we come to this meal, our invitation to this table reminds us of this. It's a meal of unity. Because in, in Corinthians 10 it says, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. We all share one loaf. It reminds us that each of us has a place at this table. And it binds us together in community. And in Corinthians, when Paul wrote that passage, that wasn't happening. And that's part of why he responded. Um, There were some wealthy, rich uh, Christians in that community who were um, eating food and letting those that were poor not have access to food. After all we've just spoken about, you can see how that would not be recognizing the body of Christ. That would not be sharing uh, communion uh, together. And um, it's not, it wasn't the purpose of the Lord's Supper and certainly didn't proclaim the message of the cross. And we proclaim his death when we eat together and we see the price that was paid for us. So we are raised up by the cross and we are welcomed into his family, but we're also humbled together at the cross. And so we all come in the same way to the cross. We're raised up, we're both raised up, welcomed, and we're humbled 
by the cross at this, at this place. We recognize that he paid the price for us. So in a busy culture with people desperate to succeed, this is a quote by Tim Chester, we practice in communion, resting on the finished work of Christ in a fragmented culture that is radically individualistic, we practice in communion, belonging to one another. In a dissatisfied culture of constant striving, we practice receiving this world with joy as a gift from God. In a narcissistic culture of self-fulfillment, we practice in communion, joyous self-denial and service. In a proud culture of self-promotion, We practice in communion, humility, and generosity. All these practices are habit-forming and seep into the rest of our lives. And so we are invited to this meal. We come to this table as a member of God's eternal family. And a place is reserved at a future table. And so, remembering that we are one body. And so, thinking about each other as we come to this table. Reflecting the nature and the character of his sacrifice for us. And so, reflecting on ways that maybe we don't do that. It's a, it's a time to realign with our culture, with what the way of the cross should be and being a servant of the king, enjoying the answer to living by bread alone, having access to the presence of God, you and I, so that we can live life well. Just um, leave you with this quote from Russell Moore. As we serve the table of Christ's communion, we are calling the church to a different kind of community. The kind of community that cannot be dissolved by petty conflict or disagreement. As we eat together around the table of Christ, we're called to a recognition that we are at the table of a kingdom. And we are called there to recognize the presence of the king. Not so much in the elements themselves or in our individual spiritual reflection, but in the body he has called together, a body of sinners like us. Forgiven sinners like us. We hope you enjoyed this message. To find out more about King's Church Warrington, visit our website or find us on Facebook and Instagram.